How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to EMS Expo 2023, coming to you from EMS World Podcast booth here in beautiful New Orleans. I am your host, Mike McCabe, and wow, do we have a great podcast series lined up for you folks. Let's not waste any time. We're leading off with two guests that I have been really excited to talk to. They're the keynote speakers for this year, and what a story they have. Dr. Jason McMullen and Dr. Woods Curry of University of Cincinnati Health were two of the physicians on the field when Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field. Hamlin was in cardiac arrest and the swift actions of so many, not the least of which, these two gentlemen, resulted in a neurologically intact save. They appropriately refer to the incident as the shock heard around the world. Dr. McMullen, Dr. Curry, thanks for joining me today. What a story you have touching so many different aspects of importance. And so let's just jump in. Gentlemen, what was it like that night on the field? Yeah, so I think uh, kind of put people in the, the setting. It was Monday Night Football. Um, you know, these are two teams with Super Bowl aspirations. Uh, January 2nd, uh, unseasonably warm in Cincinnati. Uh, it was in the 50s. I was wearing a light jacket. It was just electric. Um, tons of fun, home football game. Every single uh, NFL uh, game uh, starts uh, for us medically with a 60-minute meeting. Um, which is all the medical providers. We uh, define roles, meet each other, meet the uh, visiting team, talk about who's gonna be doing what, um, identify a cardiac arrest leader. And we did it that night just like uh, we'd done it dozens of times before. Um, it was the best job in the whole world before we had to actually work. Yeah, for um, sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it started off as a normal, a normal football game um, until we kind of had to step onto the field and, uh, and take care of DeMar. Yeah. And, and so, when that when this happens, obviously, you know, we're all providers, right? And we've all dealt with cardiac arrest management and we've all, you know, overseen codes and things like that. But like you say, you're kinda you kinda get into the mold where, all right, we're prepped, right? We're ready to go, but we're gonna enjoy this game. At what point did you realize that, you know, football players are down on the field all the time. At what point did you realize that, okay, this is bad? So like every play, all of us that are on the side, you know, the the play happens, we watch it, and then we kinda scan the field left to right, top to bottom, make sure everyone pops up. Um, and if they don't pop up, then it gets our attention and, and we watch the, the medical crews go out because it's someone's ACL or something like that. And both of us on either side, I was on the Bill's sideline, which was on the Bingo sideline. Hit happened, we've all seen the tape. Hip happens, everyone pops up, including DeMar. And we were like, all right, good. Let's get ready for the next play. And then all of a sudden things weren't, weren't fine. And down he was. Um, and it was clear that something different was, was going on. So let me ask you this. How many, so obviously you have like this huddle, this 60 minute huddle, you know, prior to the game, how many providers are involved in this? And then the other question is, does it get confusing when there's that many providers as to, you know, who's doing what, right? Uh, you know, I know I say you identify a cardiac arrest leader, but still there's a lot of people out there and now you're in the height of this. So how does that work? Yeah, so I, mean, I have to say that the, the NFL does um, a great job of making sure that we are ready for this um, 
very rare event. And so um, not only um, had we drilled this uh, in person, uh, in simulation with an outside consulting firm that comes in and puts us through scenarios, our whole team together um, for the past several years, um, we've been through this average action plan multiple, multiple times. And the roles are clearly defined. Um, who will hand off to who in certain situations, who's gonna get this thing together, that thing together, who's gonna grab this piece of equipment, that piece of equipment. It's, it's that well rehearsed. What was the driving force in getting this to this point? Because I, I, can, I can assume that it wasn't always like this. I would say that, I mean, the, the, um, you know, the, the league uh, and the Players Association have worked together to really make uh, the end game and, and the entire experience for the players incredibly safe. Um, from the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Alan Sills, um, to Dr. Jim Ellis, who's their emergency um, uh, preparedness coordinator. I mean, these are folks who have worked in the field for a very long time, and they, you know, they worried about all these eventualities. I think the Ericsson event, uh, the soccer player in Europe who went down, um, put a lot of ideas in people's heads um, and uh, really kind of pushed everyone to be a little bit better, and it couldn't have happened in a more timely fashion, right, to be ready for tomorrow. Then to answer kind of who was on the field, um, you know, Woods kind of said during the talk, maybe one of the safest places to have a cardiac arrest is on the 50-yard line of an NFL game because you're just dripping with providers that are all focused on one person. Um, the Each team has their own medical staff that has their wonderful athletic trainers that are really the workhorses of this, and then varying specialties of physicians frequently, um, an orthopedist and or a spine surgeon and a general medicine physician in different ways. Uh, the Bengal sidelines, one of our emergency medicine trained, sports medicine trained uh, partners is one of the Bengals physicians, which is a nice value add. There is, um, There are three neurotrauma consultants, the concussion docs, one on each sideline and one up in the booth. Um, the two that were on the field that day were also emergency physician partners of Woods and I. Um, and then um, we have the, he was the airway management physician. His job was to manage an airway, which had on, never been done on the field and only managed maybe once or twice ever in the history of the NFL. And uh, I was at the time called the visiting team medical liaison. Now it's the emergency response physician redefined after our role um, that the my main job is to take care of the medical needs of the visiting team from the time they land to the time they take off. So someone gets sick and needs to go to the hospital, a coach forgets their blood pressure medicine, I'm there to help them in the system. But we're also supplemented by on-field paramedics and backup paramedics that are in the tunnel. And we have a respiratory therapist on either side to deliver oxygen primarily for the, uh, for the players. But where it really kind of came down is in twofold. One, Woods talks about the training. Brett Betts, you know, our, our partner who's a Bengals physician, eloquently says, in the time of a crisis, you don't rise to the top of your training, you fall to the level of your practice. But because we, we trained on this, we just fell to where it was and we just did our job. Another one of my wise mentors said, it's always good to know the first names of everybody before the disaster happens. So because we all work together on a regular basis, from the paramedics to the respiratory therapist to us, the amount of nonverbal communication that happened just made it very, very smooth. I, I think there's a lot of key takeaways there, not the least of which being that, yes, knowing people's names, knowing exactly who's on that team, you know, prior 
to having to act is so important. And not just for this, but anything in emergency services, right? When we talk about disaster management and things like that, you don't want to be shaking somebody's hand at 2 a.m., right, at, at an explosion in a building, right? You want to know these, po these folks prior to, and you also want to exercise plans. So having great EAPs is a wonderful thing, right? But we know that the, the best laid plans collect dust on a shelf unless you actually take them down and you practice them. And I think that, you know, you saying, like, this is a well-oiled machine is, is really encouraging to hear. Pivoting from that, pivoting from this experience, what do we need to do better, not just on the NFL level, because we know that that's, that's not real life outside of the NFL. We don't have all of these providers that are well-versed in this. But what about the high schools? What about the colleges? What about public access defibrillation? What about these lay rescuers that we should be leaning heavily on? Talk to me a little bit about that, and then it came to, came to fruition after this event. I think that EMS uh, and pre-hospital providers have a lot of opportunity to work more closely with our athletic training colleagues. I mean, they, they are the intersection of sports medicine and pre-hospital medicine um, uh, in a way that I think uh, has not been well recognized in the past. You know, they're, they're responsible in most cases for kind of developing emergency action plans for their, their teams and their schools and their sports, um, and they are hungry to work. Uh, with EMS providers to be involved and make sure the plans fit what we're planning to do, make sure we fit well into the plan, understand the plans. Sure. Um, and so I think that one opportunity is to really kind of integrate um, EMS and athletic trainers together better to work um, as, a, as a more effective team uh, going forward. Um, and I, I hope we, we see a lot more of that. Obviously, there's tons of opportunity to teach um, bystander CPR and uh, AED usage. AEDs should be at the field of play always. They're no good locked up in a closet or a training room or, a, or an office somewhere. I mean, empowering, empowering civilians to utilize the AED is one thing too, right? You know, having it there is one thing that's great. It shows, hey, look, it's a pretty box. It's located right here. We see it. But people like panic. You know, people that aren't trained panic. I don't know how to do that, right? I think getting that out there a little bit more, um, being a little bit more aggressive in that approach to civilian-based training goes a very long way. I mean, one of the best things that I think has happened from this tragedy, he had a good outcome, but it's still a sure. tragedy, is the putting CPR on the forefront and early CPR on the forefront, and it's been lasting. Um, Damar and the AHA have been doing great things to really promote it. In Cincinnati, we've been doing this for a decade through a program called Take 10 Cincinnati uh, that we took from Austin. It was Take 10 Austin first, and with permission, we borrowed it and adapted it for us. That it, it's built for the citizen. I call it multi-level marketing for good, in that we do a train-the-trainer model. We teach in 10 minutes the nuts and bolts of hands-only CPR and AED awareness and usage. Um, we demystify it, but it is for free in 10 minutes at the time and location of the learner's choosing. And then hopefully we're able to get someone from that group interested that then goes and, and trade um, trains their book club, their bowling club, their beer buddies, because you never know who's going to, who's going to be there. You know, doing a 40, you know, paying $40 for a four-hour class, they have a card that quote-unquote expires, that's good for the right people, but sometimes that's a barrier that we can overcome. We've trained 2,000 people this year just for us. Uh, on stage, I talked about um, the uh, tragic story of Matthew Mangine Jr., um, who is a high schooler in our area that collapsed on a soccer field. Um, 
in a place that had an EAP, that had AEDs around, um, but it wasn't used and he did not survive. His family and his memory established the foundation um, to really drive AED awareness and EAPs in sports. And we've now come together. That group has trained more than a thousand people themselves. And the way that we that they work on it, I think is wonderful. And that is wherever there's people, train them, right? So they are working with high schools and we've partnered with athletic trainers for all of their youth sports. On the first night, let's learn how to do CPR in 10 minutes. Here's your paperwork to register for the team. Here's where you buy your jersey. Here's how you learn CPR. Coaches, parents, and athletes. And the story that I want to kind of, that I closed with today is that, you know, through that program, a trainer trained coaches and parents. And then during either a practice or a game, that trainer collapsed in sudden cardiac arrest. And one of the lay people that he trained saved his life. Wow, that's powerful. And, you know, again, we look at this, you know, from a different lens as, as medical providers. You know, we're always, you know, on top of our game and everything else. But the fact of the matter is, on, on scenes like this, and, and like I say, you know, remove this, but it, on scenes like this, it's always going to be those first care providers that are going to be able to make the most difference. And, you know, to have these types of resources like AEDs out there and not be used is, is horrible. Um, I know DeMar has been a great surrogate for this. He's really driving this home, and, and I think that he's been such a good advocate after this. Um, I'm curious, have you had interaction with him at all? Yeah, we had the opportunity to do an event with DeMar not too long ago. He came into Cincinnati, first time back into Cincinnati since his cardiac arrest, um, and he worked with the AHA and did uh, um, some teaching for bystander CPR, gave out a couple of ADs uh, to a couple of organizations, and we were able to spend a little bit of time uh, chatting with him. That's so cool. Uh, you know, again, you look at these events and, and a lot of times we just don't have positive outcomes, right? And, and so when we look, when we judge and we do, when we look at our data on cardiac arrests and, you know, what, what, did they leave the hospital? You know what I mean? Were they neurologically intact? Well, he's playing this year. I mean, you know, things like that are, are such an uplifting part of this. And I'm curious, you know, just not to pivot too far back to where we were in the beginning, but what was that feeling as a Monday night football game as, you know, everybody's watching this? I mean, they cut out, right? They did what they did. They cut out. But everybody in that stadium is watching what's going on. What was that feeling for you as physicians that are, are part of that pit crew? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, as I said in, my, in the talk today, I, I, I didn't uh, get any sleep until he <laughs> woke up. Um, and I didn't get a good night's sleep until um, he was extubated. I mean, we're so lucky that DeMar is such a strong uh, person, I, you know, I think that uh, I we owe him as much to his recovery as anything that we did, um, and I want to make that, that clear. It was a, it was a team approach, and he was the biggest part of the team. Wow. Um, you know, it, it's it's surreal, right? Because the the act itself, right, a witness cardiac arrest with bystander CPR, shockable rhythm, um, needs airway management, post cardiac arrest management. Uh, uh, we do that every day, and I never think twice about it. Um, so it took something that is uh, the if you take it out of its trappings, very usual, right. and made it incredibly unusual. Yeah. Um, and uh, it still feels weird. It still feels weird. I bet it does. You watch him come out this year onto the field. Just to f what, is, what is that feeling like for you? It's, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, we've, we've, we've kept in touch with some of the, the team. Yep. Um, you know, the, again, my job was to help you know, be the medical liaison in the healthcare system until they left. So I was in touch with one of the trainers that stayed behind 
the whole time that he was here um, and got a text from the trainer that was just describing the moment when they announced him to come out on the field. And like, I got chills. I didn't see it, I didn't hear it. And it's, it's amazing. Um, and like Woods, I'm still kind of processing what this is because, you know, we had a job to do and we did our job. So in some ways, what's the big deal? Um, it was not perfect because I've never had a perfect patient encounter or perfect code. And it's been hard at times getting, um, you know, recognition and accolades for uh, his okay work. I mean, it had a great outcome, but it, it was not, it's not perfect. Um, and it's, it's only in kind of being able to share this and it's doing these, these CPR classes. It's in talking to other survivors, talking to, you know, we've met some volunteers that are working with their high schools to figure out their EAPs and what to do. That's going to be the legacy of this, and uh, I think that's the why of of what happened from this. Yeah, I think that's really well stated and teed up perfectly. You know, this was a great outcome. And sometimes, let's just be honest, gentlemen, that you got to pat yourself on the back because you get a win, right? We deal in so much tragedy and everything else. Sometimes you got to high five it and say, hey, listen, we did really great on here. But it's no different than you resuscitating somebody that's not an NFL player, or, you know, it's just a mom, a dad, or an uncle. But the fact of the matter is this was such a great thing because I think it was so public. And so, you know, maybe there's a little bit more accolades thrown your way because it was so public. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it was done where you have somebody neurologically intact that are completely functional, the same as they were prior to. And that's a wonderful thing. But I think the bigger takeaway here is where do you go from here? What, how do you utilize this to make things better moving forward so that we can save that next kid? And we can save that next adult or that next coach or that next trainer. I think those are really the important takeaways from this. Can I, can I add one more? Um, you know, and I mentioned this kind of up on stage. It, it seems kind of weird because this was, you know, by all accounts, everything worked the way it's supposed to. This is a good outcome. Pat yourself on the back or whatever. But this should be a good positive experience. Um, but for me and I think for others on the team, it, it was still a little bit unsettling. Um, the... I've been able to recognize through myself and my own personal uh, kind of personal path and development and watching those around us, the peer support networks that are growing up. There's vendors here and there's a whole wellness side here that when I cut my teeth two decades ago, um, that stuff didn't exist, right? Um, it's suck it up buttercup and it's share a beer with friends and it's tell you know horrible stories uh, instead of recognizing, gee, something, something powerful happened Let's talk about this now so I don't get into the bottle. And you know the, the resources that are now out there for colleagues, young and old, I sure hope that everyone listening takes advantage of it. And if you don't have it, start it in your community and find it because it's not the big bad ones that get, cause problems alone, but sometimes it's the big good ones and the small average ones that just needs a peer there to support them through the process. So well said. Uh, you know, self-care in this industry is something that's started to, started to actually take form. Like you said, there's people here, but we've been talking about a lot about it over the last year, year and a half. It's really important. And rec self-recognition of not being okay and, and it, it being okay to not be okay is 100% something that we need to focus on. And like you said, I think you make a great point. Even, even things with positive outcomes – 
the body, the human psyche isn't always prepared to deal with those types of things. And I think that you pointing that out is really important and certainly something that everybody needs to take seriously. I really want to thank you guys for coming on. Uh, you, you guys were fantastic. Such a great story. But like I said, it has tentacles into so many different aspects. And, you know, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to tell your story, not just to me, but also as a keynote here. Uh, you know, such incredible reviews and so many amazing uh, things that have come back from it. You know, it's interest. It's all interest to the people that weren't there, that didn't share it, because they know how big of a story it was. But thank you for sharing that with with us today, with the listeners. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. All right, guys. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our first go here at EMS Expo 2023, coming to you live from the podcast booth here in beautiful New Orleans. We have so many more topics coming up, great speakers. So make sure you tune in. We'll be back at you real soon. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Talk soon. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 